Welcome back, everyone. In this episode of The Museum, I am joined by Deacon Henok Elias, the host of the popular podcast, The Philosophy of Art and Science. Deacon Henok is emblematic of Aksumite, that is to say, historical Ethiopian and Eritrean culture, as expressed in our present-day life and times. He has taken the abstract mind of Aksum and coded it in such a way that presents Aksumite culture thriving through the lives of Ethiopian and Eritrean people, as well as those whose interests intersect with them or his own. He is both a polybath and a polyglot, a teacher, an interpreter, writer, podcaster, and mediator. He speaks Amharic, Tigrinya, classical Ethiopic, or Gez, and has much to say about Ethiopia's other languages, such as Guraginya, um, Oromo, Tigray, Somali, and several others. I learned a lot during this podcast, and I think you will too. Let's get going. think highlighting your podcast is one of the things that I'm I'm interested in because you put it together what a couple of years ago uh, more than two years something like that June 2020 so in a couple months will be two years oh okay perfect and you call it the philosophy of art and science that's right and it's that's basically the a second... university right yeah <laughs> yeah so what do you mean by that like why why that title I just had to pick a title and my trouble is I want to always change it. I'm very iterative. I think maybe coinciding with the iterative movement in software development, but not aware of it. I've always been someone who gets feedback from leadership and gets feedback from consumers, but also has my own crazy ideas that I always want a new name. So for example, the name of my Patreon. It used to be Tawahado, patreon.com slash Tawahado, because my first ever podcast launched in 2016. And it was the Tawahado Bible study focused exclusively on Bible study. And you were a guest on that show. But when I did this new podcast, which launched in 2020, I wanted something that was generic enough to allow me to do whatever I want, because I have multiple interests and I'm multifaceted. Um, but at the same time, I wanted it to represent what I thought was a fundamental part of me, which for me is critical thinking. You know, it, it goes back to Socrates, as much as I've strayed from Western philosophy, the unexamined life is not worth living. That's his famous statement. I take it very seriously. So I, I try to think critically about it. And what I think uh, by it, I mean everything. And so by that, I, I take the whole humanities and STEM, maybe neglecting social science, but all of humanities and STEM, uh, summating it with art and science, because one of my favorite classes as an undergraduate was philosophy of art or philosophy of aesthetics. But I think the philosophy of science is a great discipline. I know a little bit less about the philosophy of science, but I'm definitely interested in, in figures like um, uh, who, who are in that field and who have, you know, tested the, the, the bounds of knowledge there. 
Yeah, it's, so almost- it's critical thinking about everything. And, and I would say most people end up hating you if you critically think about like, you know, what flavor ice cream you should have. <laughs> but I think that there's some value in like not turning it off. I also can't turn it off. Yeah. And, and what I like about, you know, your explanation too, is that philosophy is um, it's an antecedent discipline. It's an early uh, discipline that yields things like art, that yields things like the sciences. And I, you know, one thing that not just students, but uh, folks at large, I think they tend to um, misperceive is, you know, in, in the university system, you can take a philosophy class, you can take an art class, you can take different science classes. And so it's almost as though philosophy has been paired as a, a subject against these other ways of thinking when really you need philosophy uh, as, as a core set of, you know, uh, I mean, and like you said, it's a, it's a question of human thought. How do we think about things? How do we reason things? How do we, um, you know, use our, our, our intellect to then go into new fields, new domains? How do we produce art? How do we innovate, right, through that reasoning and um, there's interesting stuff in the sciences. So I, I like your take on it. I like, um, you know, when I think of your podcast, I'm like, this guy is, he's preserving Ethiopian culture. For, for those of you listening, um, Hanok is Ethiopian. And um, you're preserving Ethiopian culture in an inverted way, right? Like it's not, uh, it's not about Ethiopia. It, it's an Ethiopian, you know, intellectual having conversations that aren't bound necessarily by one theme or like the tawahido, the, the oneness, or, you know, this is a term used for the, the Ethiopian uh, Christian tradition, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahido Church. If you call it that, well, it's probably going to be a Bible study or it's probably going to be something religious. If you, you know, you make it broader, you, you have that. Um, Which is why I replaced it with Aksum uh, on a lot of things. The substack is aksum.substack. The gum road is oxum.gumroad. The Patreon has, you know, slash oxum. And, and I thought that that encompasses it more because it is a reference to the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia. At the same time, it leaves room because all these platforms are new technology. Gum road, Patreon, and Substack are all these new technologies. So there's a blending of the Afroasiatic past and its future because you're a language guy, I get to go into it a little bit as well. You know, philosophia is the love of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And one of the claims that, you know, my Hebrew teacher would say, and I would agree in regards to the Bible is that it takes, uh, if you have the Septuagint, Sophia, wisdom of the older Testament or the Hebrew Bible, and then you have the, the Hebrew, which I think is the same in Arabic and other language, the Hakmanna, which is, uh, it, it, it reinterprets that platonic school or the pre-platonic schools of, of wisdom loving and, and says, well, this is another way to show the love of wisdom. And like you said, it's, it's something that some Christian rappers have said, you know, hmm. they said like Lecrae, he says, I'm not a Christian rapper. I'm a rapper who happens to be Christian. And so, you know, my podcast is not, necessarily an oxomite podcast because there's a lot of stuff about america on there and la where i'm from uh, born and raised so it's a podcast 
run by someone who is very authentically and unapologetically Aksumite. I love that. I love it. And uh, as far as Chochmah, the, um, you know, the idea of wisdom and how it contrasts with philosophy or philosophia, there's an interesting problem that happens in, I don't just want to call it academia because it's not that it's really in, in the Western intellectual tradition where those things we call philosophy, we ascribe to the Greeks. And you know what, rightfully so, because what we're talking about when we talk about Greek philosophy is their approach to it. And so then the question is, well, how do these other cultures that, you know, they live, they exist, they thrive and um, antedate the Greeks, you know, the ancient Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, you know, um, what do we call their tradition? Is it, I mean, is it philosophy because it's the love of wisdom? Like you say, you know, we have a, the Old Testament has a book, you know, or a couple books on it and, um, you know, on that, on that very topic. And um, I think, I don't know if you've ever met, um, you know, one of my colleagues, Dr. Gerges, but in his research, he looks at, um, you know, pre-Christian Egyptian thought and how it impacts Coptic thinking. And so the question is, well, what do we call it? The, do we call it Egyptian philosophy? Um, you know, and so I think the term he settled on was the Egyptian Sophia. In other words, it's, it's leaning on that it is philosophy, but we can also still have that, that word, the way it's used popularly in, in, the liter in English language literature, at least. And, um, you know, well, how does it apply, though, to the way in which these people, who the Greeks themselves credit for many of their intellectual traditions, especially things like medicine, like they always go back to medicine and architecture and say, look to Egypt, you know, or they, they'll send people to Egypt and it's from Egypt that they learned, right? In that museon, you know, um, of Alexandria and, and which inherits um, the, the pre-Alexander, um, you know, ancient Egyptian tradition. So it's a cool, it's a cool question, I think. And, um, the way your podcast uh, proceeds as, you know, it, it's someone belonging to Oxum, <laughs> you know, and to that That's heritage. Right. I totally relate, you know, like I'm talking about my, uh, my research, like all the time, because it's my living, it's my job. And um, well, what else am I going to talk about? Hey, how, I know, in your off time, why don't you talk about your research some more? And it's like, come on, take a break, bro. Like, Talk, to, talk about things that are of interest to you. And I think what's nice about yours, what I really like and relate to, you know, um, you know, I may not be Ethiopian myself, but technically not, but I have a, a, a strong- Depends on what, uh, what, what uh, you know, what time frame we're talking about. The biologist, uh, Brett Weinstein has been uh, caught a couple of times saying, I'm just a less- uh, less recent African migrant. That's true. The, the closest that the DNA has been traced is the, the Mediterranean and, uh, you know, Greece and Italy are the, you know, the, the, I suppose, geographically the closest, but yeah, in time, but, you know, culturally, like I'm, I, I feel very connected and at home among Ethiopians and it's, um, for I don't know how other people take it. Um, 
like when I visit the the communities, the the churches, the you know whomever I'm I'm visiting, it's is so familiar to me, and that's not even at the language level, right? Language like I I can charm Ethiopian people because of my my knowledge of things like Ethiopic Ge'ez, but um, you know I don't speak any of the modern, and I barely know any Ge'ez. I, I studied it for a very short time, and um, it's been it's collected dust on the on the shelf. Um, but we're we're gonna fix that you and me in, in the in the short term. But it, it's such a cool culture and not just it's a cool culture because it's maybe an uber culture over i you would get have a better number than this what 40 or so um subcultures and those you know in a well maybe not harmony but in um uh in a collection they form and maybe define ethiopia am i am i right on that or is it yeah the nuanced the regime that was in power from 1991 to 2018 and then you could say arguably waning power from 2018 till now had a fundamental philosophy to use that word again of uh, accentuating the differences of people rather than what unites them and so they would claim that each language if it could be considered a distinct language and, and some of these languages really are dialects of each other um but that's another argument you know for another day but speaking loosely considering them all independent languages have 87 languages so they would argue that there are you know 87 cultures for me if you look at fundamentally genetics and culture really we're talking about four to six main cultures and it definitely is an amalgamation or a hodgepodge and but even within those really it's about historic ethiopia is the two the two to three main cultures of the amhara and the tigray uh, the tigrinya speakers of eritrea and then you can say to an extent the people of harar and guragi Th those are and you know you include the afar Who've, who've always been there in the Somali. And those orbits make up like the whole Horn of Africa, but yeah. like the Ethiopian nation state and the main identity is really the Amharic and the Tigrinya speakers for the most part, overwhelmingly. And what's, what's fascinating that a lot of people may not realize is just the, the ancientness of Ethiopia as a civilization or a um, I mean, civilization is the word. Some people don't like that today, but that's okay. We'll we'll use it. Um, and what we mean by that is things like uh, monumental architecture and especially writing history. You know, um, its relations with other major powers, and um, you know, it's it's mentioned in scripture, right? I mean, like if it's mentioned in the Solomonic era, that's at least a, I don't know nine hundred years or more. Um, before you know the the common era or before the incarnation before jesus right and so that's a long time to be present um or visually present you know and to be able to measure that over time and um you know they're Unlike a lot of places in Africa, I mean, every place in the world is, has an ancient heritage, obviously, but, you know, what can you measure? 
And I think the, the measurables here is basically the architecture and text, you know, monuments and inscriptions, later uh, manuscripts. And um, the, the age of, of the language itself, you know, we, we call it Ethiopic. And who knows how many languages were active at the time that it was, you know, ox, ancient Aksum. Right. I mean, we have uh, the Azana stone, which records three languages, you know, uh, uh, Ethiopic, uh, Greek, and I think it's Old South Arabic is the, the other one, if I'm not mistaken. So it's That's right. And in the port city of Adulis, which is uh, about 30, 40 kilometers southeast on the on the coast in modern day Eritrea of the Mizuwa sometimes called Masawa because of the Italians and the Turks, I imagine. But around there, there's an ancient port site and people have done work on that, the throne of Adulis. Interestingly there, it's in the common era, you know, AD something, I think 200 and 300, around there from 100 to 300. And all the stuff they found there is just in Greek so far, but yeah, more, more inland. They have the three the three languages going back to I think uh, eight hundred BC. It's it's definitely an, um, a unique place, and I think Ethiopia is not just unique for the world, but you know for Africa, and thus by extension for Africans, right? You know, and if you were to think about, or if you would summarize the uniqueness of Ethiopia, um, how would you? How would you phrase it? Yeah, I um, my thinking changed on this ever since I've done the podcast and learned more and more. Um, it and you and I have talked about this in a sense off camera before. The literacy, I think, is number one. In the consciousness of the people, I think it's the never having been conquered by a European power. Whereas, you know, by the scramble in Africa in the 1800s and even some of the early 1900s, especially after the maps changed with the world wars, you know, and then the independence movements that came later, Ethiopia was on the brink of civilizational collapse multiple times, maybe three to five times, depending on, on how we count it. The first time around the 900s AD, with uh, an alleged Yodit Gudit, who's either Jewish or pagan. Then again with Gurayng Muhammad, who is an Adalite, either Somali or Harari. I lean towards being Harari, um, which may mean that he's a former Aksumite. Yodit herself also might be a former Aksumite. And he's backed by the Turks and the the Yemenis, and it's an alliance of the Somalis and the people of Harar. Then, uh, you know, on the other side, you have Ethiopia and the, and the Portuguese. Then again, the two attempts by the Italians. And then you could talk about what I would consider the fifth attempt, which is if you see what the British did when they came in and Emperor Theodore or Theodros died. So the story goes that he took his own life, but 
some more conspiratorial say maybe the British did it, but to save face and get out of the country safely because they did so, they got into the country with the permission of other local Ethiopian dukes so that, you know, it's internal power politics. You could say that Britain and America are the ones that slowly unraveled the Ethiopian civilization with the communist revolution in 1974, because that what happened roughly 50 years ago was the biggest change in Ethiopian history of all time. And then, you know, we had federal democracy in the early nineties, but that itself was built upon the communist revolution of 1974, which upended the civilization totally where the only vestige left of old Ethiopia, I would say, is the cuisine and the Orthodox church. And the Orthodox church is really the one that, that keeps it. But beginning in the 1930s and 50s, the Brits and the Americans, and maybe the French to an extent, influenced Ethiopia to abandon its photonagast. You know, our friend, Dr. David Spielman recently minted a PhD, does scholarship on the photonagast or the, the justice or the law of kings, which was the indigenous form of governance for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that was supplanted by Western constitutions, which almost inevitably, you know, let, leads to from absolute monarchy to uh, constitutional monarchy, from constitutional monarchy to, hey, let's have a communist revolution. So that's, that's about, depending on how you count it, four or five instances where Ethiopia almost had a civilizational collapse. And yet the things I think that stick out in the minds of people our literacy, the fact that we've had literacy so far back, as we've said before the common era, to independence, depending on what we mean by independence, mm -hmm. particularly today with all the reliance on foreign aid, I think that independence might ring a, a bit hollow, but people's idea of not an overt European colonization, but I, I would, in my mind, think that there was a covert colonization when the civilization was upended in 1974 and people in the Ethiopian elites have been trying to restore it ever since. And my podcast definitely, if it could do anything, is adding fuel to the fire on the restoration side, not, not to kind of, you know, resurrect or summon something from the dead, but to do something that takes into consideration the wisdom of the past, but also the wisdom of the present and the future and mixes those together. And the component I didn't know about before, I would say are the genetics, because you know what is an African? A lot of people look at the phenotypes of Ethiopians and sometimes innocently, you know, people call us, you know, one of the prettiest people on earth. You know, one of the first things people say to me is, I love your women. I love your food, you know, and uh, it's, you know, it's fine on its face, but what that conversation has meant in the United States is people wondering whether or not they're less African or less black mm -hmm. and then being confronted every year as the DNA is unraveled more and more, we're realizing that we are the mix of several different major events. I believe the most recent big event was during the Bronze Age collapse. I, I don't know from where. My two best guesses is somewhere on the outskirts or periphery of Assyria or Babylonia, or 
perhaps even, you know, Crete or the Minoan civilization. And you and I have kind of uh, joked back and forth about things like linear A on, on that island, uh, the unknown, you know, script and, and things like that. But those are, for example, Crete, that civilization, uh, whether it was concurrent or not, we don't know. But at one point they have something that could be a Semitic script. And then at a later point, they have what becomes Greek via the Mycenaean civilization. In Aksum and Adulis, we have, as we mentioned, a Semitic script. And in fact, a Semitic script that writes two different languages. And then we have the Greek language as well. So I don't know, it could be a total coincidence, but those types of things make me wonder. And then 40,000, 50,000 years ago, we have another event that's so deep in prehistory we don't know about. But fundamentally, people were in Africa, they left Africa, some of those people came back and mixed with the people that were still there. And that's us. Whereas the story I may have grown up with and the simple story people would have thought without looking at genetics and other material, but especially genetics, I think don't lie. You know, pottery could lie mm-hmm. or we could misinterpret pottery, but yeah. genetics, you know, the better the science gets, that's something that we can trust more. Uh, I, the, the kind of view that people had without consulting genetics is our people had been in Africa all the time and they never left ever. And that's just not true. And one of the things that in common parlance that like you'll see on Instagram and TikTok, why do Habasha babies have weak genetics? And what they mean by that, what they mean by that, it's themselves talking about it. What they mean by that is they're expecting their child to look half black, what a half black person would look like. But then they end up seeing the child and the child looks more like someone that would be a fourth or less. Yeah. And there's a reason there that, that they, I feel like it's on the tip of their tongue, but they don't want to say it or they don't want to accept it. That's, uh, that's a really interesting analysis. The, um, especially tying it back to, you know, uh, we'll talk about the Minoan civilization and, and linear A. So um, what he's referring to linear A and, and linear B are two scripts that were found on the island of Crete. Linear B has been decoded as we could call it proto-Greek. It might be Minoan Greek, it, you know, either way, it's Greek enough that we're able to decode it through Greek. And linear A, some, you know, there's a lot of theories that go around about what it is. Um, you know, one theory, is it Semitic? Because like the different lists you know, of things and the registry at the end ends Kulu, right? Which, you know, Kulu from, uh, you know, is it the same in Amharic as it is in Gaz? In Amharic, the K becomes an H and we say Hulu. Okay. Um, but yeah, my podcast, my Tawado Bible study used to open with which all three of those words are Semitic cognates. And the first word is Kulu, all. All, all are total, right? And so, you know, I mean, in the sense of total, right? All together. And that's why people have wanted it to be Semitic because it matches you know, what may be in a Phoenician list of similar type. And so the question is, is it a different language that uses the same word when totaling lists? Or is it a convention that was adopted from a Semitic language? And it's really um, a different language altogether. 
I have a, a hunch on something that it is, but um, I want to learn that a little better before I um, either Release agree or disagree and can publish it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's just that's just me, you know, shooting the, the thing <laughs> online but, and, and, and guessing with it because it's uncanny that those languages or those scripts are side by side in the Horn of Africa, but also there. In, in a sense, if you look just at the larger branches, the other thing that is more in your wheelhouse we look at is the way in which Sumerian and Akkadian interact with each other and, and share uh, cuneiform. Is that right? I'm not butchering it too much. Yeah, you said it. I mean, like basically the Sumerians develop writing and they use cuneiform, which is the impressions in mud. They look triangular, you know, the, the different signs and uh, the Akkadian speakers adopted Sumerian writing system to articulate their own language. And sure, we'll talk about that on your podcast, though. Yeah, you? so there are other cases of yeah. Indo-European and Afro-Asiatic being kind of found in the same place. It doesn't mean that there's any sort of causal relationship there. But yeah, I just thought it was funny to think about. And, and who knows, you know, what time will tell. Well, what's interesting, too, is and you mentioned you know, people going and coming like coming and going right this travel side of what it means to be Ethiopian and um, Africa is a place that really it, if you understand the geography of Africa you can understand a lot of its history um, why it it developed over time the way it did or why it didn't develop we'll just say it developed differently rather than didn't develop but um, you know I mean there's a lot of coastline but are there a lot of ports you know that's no it doesn't look like there's a lot of real natural ports the same way you might have in the mediterranean world for example and uh but through the red sea in the horn of africa is a little different story and so you do have like this connection to the mediterranean um now there's no canal <laughs> there's no suez canal at the time but um there is mobility right and we know of like the Red Sea run and these um, ways of connecting Europe to India. And the quickest way is via Ethiopia. Um, you can do it over land, you know, but think about, just think about how does geography impact someone's mobility? If you are physically closer, but you've got a large mountain range or you've got, you know, um, a lot of desert or area where you can't eat you can't provide provisions, and so you have to pack up. There's a reason why the Silk Road kind of goes up and around a lot of places rather than directly. And um, you could go through, you know, the, the rivers of Mesopotamia down to the Persian Gulf was one way of traveling um, to, to the east, to India, and beyond. The other was the, the Red Sea. And so the nice thing about the Red Sea is it, it took less time to go from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea than it would the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, you know, or, um, you know, connecting to the Persian Gulf that way. So there's a reason that they, there's Greek there. And then the question is, who's reading stuff and why? And we know that Ethiopia has this very strong connection to both um, Arabic and Aramaic culture, um, and probably Akkadian culture too. I mean, it's just unexplored, um, you know, to what end that might be. Um, the Akkadian or the uh, Assyro-Babylonian culture, Mesopotamian culture, basically. So um, it's interesting that we don't have as many 
you know, Aramaic um, and Ethiopian inscriptions um, the way we would. Okay, well, there's Greek ones. Surprise. Maybe one of the reasons is because Ethiopic, we'll call that. So if anyone's listening, when we say Ethiopic and Ge'ez, we're, we're meaning the same thing. That's the classical language of Ethiopia, the same way like ancient Greek or Latin may be a classical language for um, you know, the, the Western powers. But maybe there's enough intelligibility that you don't need to make an inscription because the people get it. I have never thought of that. That's funny. Uh, you know, why else? It, it's possible. Um, it, it also is dependent upon literacy and, and who's going to read it. And so if the, the travel, you know, maybe the other issue might be travel from the Middle East um, would be more permanent, whereas the Greek might be more temporary, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm just ripping. I, I'll give you a modern example that backs your case. So in the 20th century, as one example, before, you know, before the communist revolution, so still historic Ethiopia going on, the more and more I learn about it, it's fascinating. There's these people, the Gurage, from which we get the Kutfo culture that the rest of Ethiopia has now adopted as its own culture, but its most authentic expression is still the Gurage. And they have a lot of origin stories if you ask them or if you ask historians or archaeologists or whoever, one of the arguments is that they used to be in modern day Eritrea, but that was around the time of the fall, the first almost civilizational collapse. So you can think about it as it as expansion and contraction of the Aksumite empire uh, around the Yodit Gudit, so around 900 or 1000. And then these are Aksumites that got left in the South during the contraction period. And so they, got assimilated with the other cultures that were around and then get reincorporated later as as the empire re-expands so whatever the truth of them i would say if you know one of the arguments is that the amhara culture was the most dominant from 1270 to 1974 whether that's a good thing or a bad thing you put it aside it being the case virtually all of the businesses and it's become a stereotype. So you don't want to make it a stereotype. We're speaking in, in general tendencies. Sure, yeah. Virtually all of the businesses in the capital city and some of the other major cosmopolitan areas were controlled by the Gurage and the Tigrinya speaking Eritreans. Now, what you can say about that is that they are both speakers of another Semitic language. And for them to pick up Amharic, is an almost trivial thing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to trivialize language learning, but it's an almost trivial thing. And they say that the Gurage occupied all of the smaller businesses and all of the mid-sized to larger ones were occupied by the Tigrinya speaking Eritreans. And the extent of it, I, I didn't understand until very recently. Even today, one of the largest bakeries in Addis Ababa is called Shoa Bakery. And the thing that cracks me up about it is Shoa is an Amharic-speaking region. So the name of it is an Amharic-speaking region. The owner is a Tigrinya-speaking Eritrean. Nice. <laughs> and I, I just found out about that. You know, I, I, my family uh, married into that uh, Eritrean family as well. So I, I learn and I hear these, these firsthand accounts from all these people. I have plenty of friends and my own family before I was married as well. 
and I would hear these stories, but like the older I get, the more I hear these stories. And you have to think, you know, maybe there are many, many factors behind that. But one of them has to be your point that language ac acquisition and accessibility for some people is going to be easier than others. If you have good, maybe you don't need Aramaic. You yourself, uh, I've mentioned it on a couple of our podcasts, have called it the African Aramaic because yeah. Aramaic is not one language that you take and you uh, curse Trump with, but it's <laughs> uh, a series of, of, of languages, right? Yeah, right. Of which Syriac is, I think, the, the, the big one that you work with, but there's also biblical Aramaic and so many others. Yeah, and it's um, it's an interesting question about like where does, you know, what's the difference between a language and a dialect? And sometimes, you know, the classical response is, well, um, a language has an army and a navy. <laughs> you know, so it means, you know, what's the difference between Danish and Norwegian? Well, there's differences, but they're pretty intelligible. Uh, you go a little further to, you know, Swedish, a little, you know, more challenging. And look, I'm, I'm not a native of any of those languages, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. I just, uh, I've, I've looked enough to know to say that, and that's it. But um, I'll add to that, too, because I used to be an ombudsman, which oh, is there you go. A, it's a Nordic term. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I think originates in Norwegian, but it would be intelligible to all of them. And uh, I, I practiced it on a, a, Swedish, a Swedish friend about a, a year ago, and she knew what it was as, as immediately when I said it. It's uh, supposed to be something equivalent to the representative of the people uh, or the voice of the people. And it's supposed to be this accountability mechanism that they created. Uh, almost like a alternative king, like not the king, <laughs> but the one who takes in the complaints of the people and uh, independently or objectively addresses it to the king or whoever the ruler is. Like and the they have it across those cultures. Yeah. Or, or the Catholicos or something like that. Um, yeah, it's interesting too, just because like you said, there's intelligibility and then there's difference. There's straight up difference. And, um, you know, I, I think with Aramaic, it's, um, there are certain features about the language among the Semitic languages that if those features are present, you call it Aramaic. And it's when those features disappear, <clears throat> maybe you start calling it Arabic or Nabataean. You know, Nabataean is like this gray zone between Aramaic and Arabic, right? And so um, maybe you call it Hebrew or, you know, there's a, a an inscription from a, a place called um, Deir Allah, and it's it's been debated: is it Hebrew or is it Aramaic? And it's like in this geographical liminal zone between the two um, spe speech communities. And I would argue, ultimately, it's Aramaic. It's Aramaic, you know, with this sort of um, uh, scribal style, you know, that may be more Canaanite. But um, in, in any case, I think it's interesting. You know, I, I assume the you're talking of the Guraje or Guragenya speakers. How, yes. Is it pretty different than Tigrinya? So Tigrinya is going to be more in, in the present day, you know, country of Eritrea and maybe and North Ethiopia, North uh, Eastern Ethiopia, right? Yeah. Are, are they similar or, or distinct? We should ask uh, Dr. Spielman. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're pretty distinct. He he has found a number of interesting connections, even between Guraginya and Giz, and they're certainly there, but you have to dig to find them. Um, it's very clear that 
the language I've heard some people call it Tigray recently, but I always thought it was Tigra. But whatever it is, 30% of the population of Eritrea, about a million people, speak this one language called Tigra or Tigray. And that's the closest modern language to Giz, except those people are overwhelmingly Muslim. And so they'll use a lot of Arabic when they speak as opposed to using Giz when they speak. And they have almost no relationship with Giz, but their modern language is the closest. The second closest language to Giz of the modern languages is Tigrinya. After that would be Amharic or Amarinya. And then you go into this kind of other branch of Ethiopian Semitic languages like Soddo and Guraginya and Argoba. Uh, Argoba, I don't think really has any more speakers, but there might be a few out there. And those languages are very similar to each other. Even the language of Harar, they call it Gesinan, which means the city language. And mm. my father and his sister actually speak that because their neighbors spoke it in the capital city. But uh, that, that language and Guraginya and Soddo and Argoba, I think are closer they kind of cluster together more to each other. And so there are definitely connections with Giz and with Amharic and Tigrinya and this other Tigra or Tigre, whatever the name of that language. Some Even the dialect language thing is tied up in politics. There's this dissertation on the Tigrinya language that comes out in 73 before the main revolution. And in that dissertation, it talks about five dialects of Tigrinya. Two of them are in Ethiopia and three of them are in Eritrea. And then in addition, you have this other language that they call Tigre or Tigre. And even like writing these things out in, in English looks ridiculous, let alone writing them in, in Giz. They're all like very similar so that the Tigrinya speakers in Ethiopia, they're either called Tigre or Tagrawai. Now they made up a new term. In Eritrea, they're called Behera Tigrinya, which means the nation of Tigrinya speakers. And then the other group is called Tigra or Tigre. And you could hear even the designation itself is not necessarily a scientific designation. It's, it's a category that people are coming up with and they're, they're very close to each other. Uh, but yeah, those cluster together well. Amharic is kind of by itself, but also related to those. And then there's the other set of Semitic languages. It's really, you know, fascinating. It goes back to what you said about the the amount of cultures, maybe three to four sort of major um, communities, you know, and then you have variations of that. And um, some maybe were more mobile, right? Some maybe were more movable, I guess. And yeah. had less guns, like you said. Yeah, and, and when you have the Amharic that... uh, stereotype is that they are the people with the guns. <laughs> What's and adds, you know, they are the official language, right? How many official languages are there in Ethiopia? There's one official language, it's Amharic, but they've now added four working languages, which are Tigrinya, uh, Afanoromo, or Oromiña. Um, and I believe Somali, and then maybe Afar. I think Afar might be after it. Guraginya, I used to think had way more prominence, but it's, I don't think it's on the list. It's, it's lower than that. And I think they did it by percentage of the population. So Somali is something like 6% of the, the population, which makes it somewhere between six and 8 million. Mm. Is it written with the 
um, the Ethiopic Fidel script or is it written with Arabic script? I think it's written with Latin script, Latin, which is, it's crazy. Somali has been written with many different scripts yeah. over time. That's more of a nation building question. If anyone ever asked my opinion, they should all use the Giz script, whatever language we're using, we should, we should have one script. You know, it's, it's crazy that some people through this regime, uh, ethno-linguistic decentralization regime from 1991 to 2018 mainly, but whose influence is still being felt now because their policies have yet to be dismantled. The people have been dismantled or taken out of power, but their policies have not. Uh, you can be someone, for example, an Oromo speaker who grows up in an Oromo area and you have your K-12 education in the Latin script. And that makes you virtually illiterate in the official language of the country that you're in. And you could imagine that that on a large scale is only going to highlight and emphasize the differences between people in the, in the, in the regions versus in the capital city and in, in other parts of the country. And so it's a sort of, I believe, tactical and intentional thing that is meant to divide and conquer and ultimately Yugoslavize the country or Balkanize the country. So. Uh, I don't think it's smart to have some of them in Latin script and some of them not. I don't even know, you know more about, you know, the languages. I don't know if, is there an argument that the Latin script is better for a Cushitic language than a Semitic script would be? I, I don't know how that could be the case. Well, you know, the, the Ethiopian writing system, and I'm speaking more to the people who aren't you and me right now, who, who don't know this, but it's, um, it's syllabic. So um, if you were, you, it's not an alphabet, it's a, um, a chart, uh, kind of like uh, if anyone studied hiragana or katakana in Japanese, it's got consonant vowel, right? And, and that's the form. How would you, you know, go through the, the holham? Uh, the old system is oh, ABGD order, the new system is Ha hu he ha he he ho. So it even begins with alpha and ends with omega. It's seven seven sounds, seven vowels. The new system puts the same consonant, and then you go through the seven sounds of the of that consonant. The old system was scrambled in A B G D order. Hmm, interesting. And either way, you're hearing on the end the um, the the vowels on the end of the, the H, we'll just call it an H, right? Yes, and, and the vowel order is the same in both. And in fact, in, in the 20th century, for example, mid 20th century, when my parents would learn it, as they are chanting the Psalms of David and first John and the gospel of John in three different melodies in Guz, they, uh, the first thing they do is the new system of same consonant. Then they have to do the, the older system, which is scrambled consonant, same vowel. And then they have to go through these texts in order, first John, then Gospel of John, and then all the Psalms of David. Man, slick. Um, well, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, I, I, like, I like the traditional. Um, I, I like pairing traditional learning methods with the different, you know, techniques we use today. Um, some, there's something to be said for the old style, even if it doesn't always jive with the learner, right? I'm 
now we're we're really you know learner based or student based you know in our teaching and we try to well, good teachers at least we try to contextualize the material for the learning style of the specific student some professors or teachers don't do that um, and that's that is it is what it is so that's good for learning you know one on one or you know what being able to be accessible to each learner but uh, the traditional method is should be i think if not equally valued, very much valued, you know, because it, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's I'll brutal. tell you that I, I have a cousin. She's born and raised in the United States, like me, about eight years older than me. And she says that she teaches the Ethiopic or Giz alphabet or chart in 10 days. Now, I think that's crazy. One of the things she's told me, and I have a, a couple other friends who have similar rates, what they do is they just teach the first column which yeah. is one sound. And then they assume that others could figure out the pattern on themselves. And, and she's, you know, she's a doctor um, in psychology, I believe, but it like focuses on learning and memory. So she's very much applying new learning and memory techniques. And it's definitely student focused and all these things. The old system is brutal, by the way, comes with a priest carrying like like a tree branch and it, you know if you don't say it right you get smacked you know corporal punishment very much alive back then so it's I mean it's brutal my dad told me you know his first teacher was you know absolutely abusive so he he left and the way it was is like you just literally go on the street and there's some guy just teaching on the street for free and then like the people in that neighborhood kind of just give that guy food and, and alcohol you know, that's kind of his payment. And he maybe gets a salary or something from some other local parish. So my dad just went around the block and found like some other priest and ended up spending like three to five years. He doesn't even know how long it was like learning that. So that's like our version of preschool and kindergarten before you enter grade school. And then he says that guy, he had a great relationship with him until he like graduated high school and, and left the country. Like that guy always checked up on him and everything, you know, so wow. that system was definitely brutal. And I'm, you know, God knows how many people didn't make it through the system. My mother went through most of the system, didn't finish, not because of any abusive priest or anything, but just didn't finish. And who knows like what their uh, recidivism rates were yeah. in that system. And but those who made it through those system, I would, I would say have the strongest Amharic. Makes sense. And, you know, if we tie that to the question of is the Ethiopic script the best suited for all languages in Ethiopia, I think we there's a couple different ways of taking it. And, um, you know, your cousin's approach of teaching the first shape is useful in a way because, and, and I don't know this, I don't know the different, you know, what each language sounds like. Are they all syllabically rhythmed? the way um, Ge'ez or Amharic is. I would think maybe, but there could be some that are different language families that would sound radically different. Um, Over 90% are either Semitic or Cushitic. Uh -huh. And the, you know, I named basically the Semitic ones. Uh, the Cushitic ones are Afar, Somali, Ago, uh, Oromo, uh, Hadia, and, and a few others that, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but, I would say there are 90 plus percent of them are Afro-Asiatic. The ones that are not are, I think, Omotic or Nilotic, which is a very small percentage of the population, you know, like less than 1%. Yeah. So if, if the 
syllabic style of writing is well suited to those that it matches, that is obvious, you know, use that script. It's, you know, at least you can always transliterate into Latin. That's not a, Latin is probably one of the least problematic, you know, languages. Look at what happened to Turkish, you know, it's gone through its own um, movement in, in, or Mongolian for that matter, right? Like another Altaic language where you have a, a specific Mongolian system um, derived from Aramaic, by the way, um, that you know gives way to several different scripts, and finally, in the you know the twentieth century, is um, Cyrillic, like the the Russian um, alphabet, and now we can write it in Latin. <laughs> so it's just it's a it's easy, it's flexible. But if the language is not um, rhythmically syllabic, there is an alternative, and it's to use the older system that. Uh, doesn't have the the end marks or the the nuance. So just to explain for um, those listening, uh, there's a shape of every letter in the Ethiopic writing system, and the shape is manipulated ever so slightly. Most of the time, on the end, on on the right side of the of the character, and it could be. Um, you know, higher up, middle or below, it could be a little nick, it could be a loop or something like this. And knowing those marks, in some cases, it changes the entire shape of the letter. But most cases, it's, you know, it's easier to tell if, if the, you know, little protrusion is in the middle, it's going to be one vowel. If it's at the bottom, it's going to be another vowel. And that's not so bad. But what is it? What does it come from, right? It comes from a static alphabet. And that static alphabet is like, it's related to um, Sabaic or epigraphic old South Arabic. And it is a way of writing that doesn't have the vowel marks, which is very Semitic too. I mean, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, they're all traditionally written without vowel marks. They're consonantal and then they're manipulated with dots or um, tenween or, you know, some kind of um, notches, you know, that go above or, or below what's written so that it can be vocalized with vowels. But most of the people, if you knew how to read it, you knew it, you were done. <laughs> so if there are alphabets, or I'm sorry, if there are languages in Ethiopia that are um, not as f- easy to use with the syllabic system, that's okay. Use the base system, right? Because one of the one of the rhythms, at least, um, is a a a constant. How would you say it? The one like t and t, right? There's a um, there's one that's almost a pure consonant, or it's a consonant with a schwa or half vowel attached to it. And maybe that might be what that specific language in Ethiopia would use against you know, the other fully um, valved out system. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, or maybe it would just be heavy on those consonantal um, iterations rather than all the other vowel iterations. And it could just use the get system itself and not necessarily need to just use the, uh, uh, the consonantal version. Yeah, so. and each language has adapted it. You know, in the transition from Gu'uz to Amharic, Amharic has added several letters that right. don't exist in Gu'uz. The Ch sound didn't have it. 
the ch sound didn't have it, the j sound didn't have it. And uh, Tigrinya has done those sounds plus another one, as in the their capital city of Tigray right now is Amharic speakers call it Makale, Tigrinya speakers call it Makala. So they added this extra cue that's like deeper in the throat. The that's, Ara that's under Arabic influence. If I, I mean, it might it? not be under Arabic influence, <laughs> but like if you're listening to different uh, people speak Arabic, you know, um, you'll hear the accent where they will in Arabic. It's a um, a qof. Uh, I'm using the Aramaic word for the letter, but we we have that no, but we have that letter and too. So for that's uh, but yeah. then they have another one. Uh, it's it's deeper in there. And so what happens with the the qof is that in certain regions, you will just drop it and have a glottal stop, you know, instead. So if you're ordering like, um, what would it be? It's not a hot pocket, not a pizza. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, manakish, but uh -huh. people don't say manakish, they say manaish, where that oh, okay. Q transforms and disappears into this glottal stop. In, the in Saudis Ethiopia, make it a the, G, but- I was just going to say that. Uh, you got uh, it. So some- some people turn Q's into G. So there's this thing with like, you know, Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Uh, Maria Magdalawit. Some people say Magdalawit and some people say Magdalawit. And there's Magdala or Magdala. Uh, you, there are other cases of it too. Um, but that's, it's usually a GK shift. Tuesday was Magsta Senyo and most people now say Mak Senyo. So it's usually a G, K, so-and-so is a gale, which becomes a kale. Like it's usually a G, K thing, but sometimes it's a Q, G thing. So yeah, that they do that. And the Oromo speakers I've seen, they have some letter that I can't pronounce where it's halfway between a D and a J. And I've heard it so many times and I've tried to like say it. I can't say it, but they made a new letter of the script for those people who do it. You see, they use the Latin script now, but they used the Goethe script earlier. So in the early 20th century, there was this guy, uh, Nasibu, who translated the Bible into Oromo, and he wrote it in the Goethe script. So it's not even that I'm like, you know, reminiscing on something that never happened. Yeah. Like, it has already happened. It's, I think, you know, just political things and a whole lot of missionaries, you know. I think it was the influence. I think some people have said some German missionaries and, you know, it's easier for them to use a Latin script. Um, our Swedish missionaries, German missionaries, obviously the Italians, they all had their own influences when, when they came to Ethiopia. Would that sound that you described sound anything like tse? No, it's like j, but okay. I, I'm butchering it, but it's, it's halfway between a D and a J. Like there's duh and there's j. And there, the ja doesn't exist in guz. The does the original letter, which exists in guz. And then Amharic adds ja. Oromo adds ja. It's like they, when they transliterate it in the Latin script, they write dj. But uh, in, it's an in emphatic guz, it has j. It's an emphatic j. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I was wondering because in Egypt, if you listen to the Arabic in Egypt, and this probably goes back to the way in which. Um, you know, the, maybe it was Alexandrian because there's no J in, in, in Greek and um, Alexandria is a, you know, Greek colony there. So uh, in Northern Egypt, you'll pronounce the Arabic letter Jim, J, as game, gim, you know, 
they'll say gamel, you know, gamel del Nasser, right? And if you go, you keep going up the Nile, which is south, um, in the middle it's z, and then if you go further uh, up the Nile, further south, it's j, and, and it becomes a real jim again. So I was, that's why I was wondering if, you know, it sounds kind of like there's a D there, but uh, maybe we call it emphatic J. On the Anyways. same strain on that same word and, and letter, the Tigrinya speakers pronounce it with a J, but the Amharic speakers with a G. And the G is what's there in, in the Gs. Uh, God help us. We are nerds. Um, this, is, this is unique. And if you're still listening... You're one of us, just so you know. You are one, one of the three listeners. You are still one of us. Uh, anyhow, I, I think you know the the idea of mobility in Ethiopians is always is recently not always has recently been of interest to me because um, leaving Ethiopia and forming communities, you know, you you settle in different spots. L.A. is one of them. D.C. right, like Houston. There's uh, Ethiopians in a lot of spots in the U.S. Are they mostly, you know, um, Amharas, or are they you know, from every region of Ethiopia? Like, how does that landscape? They're from like? most regions, but the more marginalized you are, the less likely you're going to be here. I would say, for example, one of the most marginalized groups are one of these Nilotic groups, one called the Anuak, and. Um, okay. There's a, a, a gentleman, I think his name is Wada Wada. I apologize if I get it incorrect, but there's a small city called Austin, Minnesota, and he recently won political office there. Huh. Uh, Obala, I think it's Obala. I think his name is Obala Obala. And he recently won uh, office there. And for example, he is one of the you know more marginalized groups. There wouldn't be a ton of like, you know, his group in Minnesota, I've heard that they've They've got uh, quite a few of the Anuak there. I even have a friend, Dr. Richard Benton, who's a, a language guy, and he loves uh, uh, preserving these things. So he preserved like a little bit of Anuak from a speaker that he met, I think on SoundCloud, people could find it and, and listen to it. I had never heard it in my life. Wow. And, and there he is. Uh, he also has a, a bunch of Oromo friends that he learns Oromo from. He'll pick up a little Amharic and Giz from me. Uh, I know they have a strong Somali community out there in Minnesota too. So there's there there are I would say you know Amhara, Tigray, Oromo, Gurage. These are like the big groups, but you know I haven't met that many people from Afar. Um, in Minnesota, I met some Somali Ethiopians. In Los Angeles, I've never really met any Somali Ethiopians. That's not to say they're not here, but I just I don't see them as much and. There would be other, you know, smaller groups too that you you don't see as as often. Certainly, I would say like the overwhelming amount of Eritreans that I've met are the Tigrinya speaking ones. You know, there's a Saho tribe and an Afar tribe as well, and those are related in Eritrea. I don't really meet many people from there. The Tigray or the Tigray, whatever the name of the language is, I haven't met many people from there. I met some people who are mixed, but uh, the smaller the group, the less likely they're here. Also, Los Angeles is different than D.C., and they're both different from Minnesota. Minnesota seems to be more Oromo population uh, dominant than other places, but you'll find everyone there. D.C. seems to be home to some of the oldest immigrants, but also some of the newest immigrants. In general, L.A. has some of the oldest immigrants to have been you know, capable of getting out here in the 60s and 70s, but there are some newer immigrants as well. 
Yeah, LA is an interesting case study, I think, because, you know, well, for you especially, you're one of the few who I would call an expert on um, Oxum LA, you know, and uh, <laughs> there's probably a lot to talk. We could probably do our own podcast just on Oxum LA. Um, and if you're interested in Oxum LA, go ahead and listen to Henock's podcast because um, there's a lot of Los Angeles uh, in there. Is there any sort of special or unique Ethiopian or Eritrean, right, Oxum history to Los Angeles that most folks don't know about? Well, it's it's hard to say anything unique, but, you know, pretty much the people who saw signs of the regime following uh, in the in the 70s, some of some signs of which were there in the 60s because there was a coup attempt in 1960. Those elites used to have a strategy where they go get educated in the US and then they return. My parents' generation and the one, you know, plus or minus five years are the group of people who came here to get their education and return, but then they saw havoc back home and ended up staying. So they began to form the first churches. And I've said before that the church is kind of the last vestige of old Ethiopia, the Orthodox church, that is. And so the community began forming in Los Angeles, but before it had, you know, its its own, you know, from Ethiopia, there were already Black Americans from America, what we call ADOS now, and then Caribbean Black Americans as well, who had been under the banner of Rastafarianism and various different Black nationalist movements, I think a lot of which started in New York, but were big in LA as well, and somehow had made a connection with the later uh, Abuna Isaac, back then just Abba Mandefro, and through him and the patriarch um, Abuna Teoflos, they were able to establish church communities. And a lot of times those communities would be led by those the same Black American community. They would be English-speaking communities. And so in Los Angeles, we have, who's still alive with us, uh, someone I got to speak to, Father Amda Hamilton or Amda Sion Hamilton, uh, Pillar of Zion is his, his uh, yeah. baptismal name. And, uh, Amud Sion. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so he he's uh, in his early 80s now, but he was a longtime priest, the first Ethiopian Orthodox priest in Los Angeles. And he himself has a very interesting heritage as someone whose family comes from Texas and Louisiana from kind of Creole America. He told me his grandmother didn't speak English. She spoke Creole. Wow. And so he kind of spoke a little bit of both as a kid. And their family is one of the first uh, families that moved to Los Angeles. And they were part of a Black Catholic community. But he got into, you know, drug life and other things, was incarcerated but had this moment after reading, um, I think it's Claude Sumner, I, I might get the, the name wrong, but one of these uh, philosophers talking about the philosophy of Ethiopia, yeah. and Aksum, there we go, comes out, joins these, you know, various black nationalist movements, brings gang members and, and gang leaders together, along with, uh, you know, that are more from that area, along with Caribbean, you know, Rastafarians, along with that burgeoning Ethiopian community, and for some 15 years or so, maybe 20 years, led this community of, of Aksumites in Los Angeles, mostly English speaking in the beginning, but as more and more immigrants came 
fleeing the red terror in Ethiopia, once that, you know, got off in the 70s and 80s, you see the population of those church communities changing and uh, pushing out kind of the, the black Americans and the, and the Caribbeans, you know, sadly, and, and some of those are, are still there and some of their, you know, disciples and students are still there in, in various forms at, at the two major churches, at least um, the Slauson Church on uh, Slauson Ave that Nipsey Hussle later made famous, another Aksumite who I got to participate in his funerary service for at the uh, Eritrean Church Madhanialam on, on Western in Manchester, which is another part of South LA. My own church is on... Uh, it used to be on Compton and 46 with people used to confuse for the city of Compton, which is, is not uh, just kind of generic south eastern part of South Central Los Angeles. And then we moved to Maine and 49th or Maine and 50th, um, you know, between those two. So those are kind of those church sites. And, and there are a few other churches now. There's, there's one, I think, on uh, Normandy and 46th. There's a, another one in, in uh, Inglewood on, I think, 99th and Inglewood, something like that, very close to Century Boulevard, right next to the uh, airport. So the, these churches, I would say, and then Little Ethiopia, obviously on Fairfax and Olympic, but also kind of unofficial Little Ethiopias in Mid-City, in West Adams, and in Inglewood make up the kind of centers of Aksum in Ethiopia, Little markets and liquor stores that are owned by Habashas, as well as restaurants. I think your description of LA, like number one, it's a fantastic summary <laughs> rather than like one event you've kind of you've put it all into, you know, a couple minute um, abstract. But what I noticed about it and, you know, our podcast was about, it ended up being about this, but Ethiopians, um, of a, a unity and diversity or some kind of plurality defining, you know, this Aksumite culture and heritage. And what we saw in LA, right, is that's Aksum. That's bringing people in who maybe have different socioeconomic status and sociolinguistic groups. And they come together and they disperse, come together and disperse. And like, that's the a recurring theme of Aksum. And I think Aksum LA, like you are the king of Aksum LA, if there, if there is one. <laughs> so well, now that, now that the, uh, this, the throne is open or vacant. So anyway, um, I want to thank you, uh, for joining me today. If you have any final plugs, um, you know, website, Substack, uh, podcast, you know, to the, to the three or four listeners out there, there's probably four by the end of this episode, Definitely check out Henock's podcast. Um, go ahead and, and let us know where to find you. Yeah, the easy thing you can do, you can type in Dr. Michael Wingert, P-O-A-A-S, and you should find two episodes with uh, Dr. Michael Wingert. And you'll find my podcast via that's the philosophy of art and science. But, you know, the acronym is P-O-A-A-S. Punch that into YouTube. I'm sure you'll find it, especially with his name. And you'll have two more episodes to watch as well. Then I'll just keep it simple and say head over to the Substack so you could read if you're a reader and not allergic to reading. That's Aksum, A-K-S-U-M dot Substack dot com. And thank you for having me. I'm a Saganalo, Xavieri, Hubaka, Shukran, Toda. 
and um, you know we'll next time you know we'll meet again on this podcast but we're also going to meet again on yours so uh, look for us on both uh, all three or four of you all right i mean all right take care my brother